being in a different uh, gravitational environment means that those models are no longer uh, applicable. Okay, therefore, we have a lack of design tools when we're trying to uh, design and construct space components. Okay, because the knowledge that we have is limited to Earth's gravity. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Welcome back, podcasters. If you're like me at all, you're probably trying to find ways to cut your electricity bill by laying off the thermostat. It's August after all, and pretty much everyone, every business in the Northern Hemisphere is cranking up the air conditioning. First, we humans like a room temperature to range from 20 to 25 degrees Celsius. That's 68 to 77 Fahrenheit. And then second, most electronics, like your television, hum in an ambient temperature that stays at or below 35 Celsius, or 95 Fahrenheit. And for the sake of this episode, I'd like to remind all that electronics, when they're being used, give off a lot of heat. It's why server farms require so much air conditioning. Another place that has a lot of sensitive and expensive electronics is the International Space Station, or ISS. On board, the ambient temperature is maintained at around 22 Celsius or 72 Fahrenheit for both human and machine comfort. That's no small feat, because without thermal control, the station's internal temperature would range from 121 Celsius to negative 157, depending on whether the station was in the sunlight or not. So it can be blisteringly hot or cold enough to compete with Dante's ninth circle of hell. This kind of wild temperature variance affects all spacecraft, not just the ones with humans aboard. So a lot of thought, a lot of insulating material, a lot of thermostats and HVAC systems, and a lot of money is invested in keeping humans and electronics comfy in space, but with 20th century technology. And the reason for this is because we are only just beginning to understand how microgravity, or for this discussion, the lack of gravity, affects the molecular behavior of the most important chemical substance, at least in our universe, and that's water. As a coolant, water has a history that dates back to when we humans first used it in a liquid phase to douse fires. When liquid water hits a fire, it carries away the heat in a vapor phase. And when that vapor cools, the water molecules condense back into a liquid phase. Both NASA and my next guest believe that if we understand how this liquid to vapor, then back to liquid behavior, works in microgravity, new smaller and lighter and less costly environmental systems can be designed, then deployed on satellites, space stations, and off-world habitats. So it's key to space exploration, space commerce, and space defense, and if we're being ambitious, off-world colonization. This episode is about NASA's flow boiling and condensation experiment. Their experiment's second module arrived at the ISS last week. And we have the lead researcher, Professor Isam Mudawar. Here is our conversation. Hello, Isam. Welcome to the Downlink Podcast, and thank you so much for joining me today. 
pleasure to meet you and uh, to, to answer your questions today. Isam, this is your first time on the podcast. So take a minute to introduce yourself and what you do at Purdue University. So uh, my name is Isam Modouar. I am a professor in mechanical engineering, have been at Purdue for 39 years, with uh, probably 11 more to go. And I direct several uh, laboratory uh, organizations in the School of Mechanical Engineering. My focus right now primarily is in thermal aspects of aerospace systems. And you're one of America's and probably the world's experts in thermal engineering. You're kind of known as a scientific polymath. You have an interest in heat transfer, materials processing, electronic cooling, thermal management of aerospace systems, nuclear reactor safety, all of which are tied to space. And then there's the two-phase flow, which we'll get to in a bit. But you bring another ingredient to engineering that is probably less likely known and that back in your youth, you almost became a sculptor and a painter, kind of like the legendary polymath Leonardo da Vinci. I'd like to know how you think you've applied your creative talents from the fine arts to mechanical engineering. I mean, it's obvious that you think outside of the box or perhaps in your case, outside of the flow tube. Uh, yeah, uh, throughout my teenage years and into uh, uh, my bachelor's degree time, I was uh, heavily involved in oil painting as well as sculpture. I was pretty much obsessed with that. And um, the the uh, time constraints prevented me after that from pursuing those uh, activities. However, I do pursue art and everything that I do right now in my technical field. When I design systems, when I give presentations, it's, uh, it's really an integral part of the way I present my material. It hasn't subsided at all in that respect. I also uh, have a hobby of uh, uh, studying art history quite a bit, and I keep up on trends. In art, uh, particularly modern art these days, although I also have some interest in classical art. But how does this creative background of yours, I mean, left side, right side braining, how do you think you've been able to employ it in your actual mechanical engineering? I mean, not just the presentations, but, you know, how you approach these problems. You know, we do a lot of design work in my field, uh, designing experiments. Uh, setting up a video capture of uh, particular phenomena. And in all of these activities, uh, there is a lot of uh, need for creative ways in presenting and designing. And that's where, you know, I do that kind of activity. I also try to encourage my own graduate students to have those skills because I really believe that uh, engineers do need uh, artistic skills. They do need to be able to sketch their designs, present them. And I'm always astonished how many people do not have that skill. Okay, so now let's get into the reason why I reached out to you. And that's because I received what seemed like a simple press release about yet another experiment from some company or university lab being sent up to the International Space Station. But 
This really caught my eye because the outcomes of your experiment will have applications for almost anything launched to or built in any one of the Earth orbits, on the moon, in the cislunar region, Mars too, and I bet someday even deeper into deep space when we're all dead and gone. And, and that's the foundational importance of controlling temperature. Why don't you start by first explaining the importance of controlling the temperature for any off-world activity, and then the challenges of microgravity and perhaps even moon gravity? Yeah, um, gravity is extremely important when it comes to the transfer of energy and also to controlling temperature. It is absolutely vital when you are living in a space vehicle or being transported in a space vehicle or you're in a potentially in the future in a habitat on the moon or on Mars. We're all uh, mindful of how uh, uncomfortable we, uh, we become with even minute temperature changes in our house if we don't have the proper temperature control. So just imagine in these harsh environments outside Earth how difficult it's going to be for people to manage uh, the temperature control and achieve the desired outcomes in terms of temperature level, in terms of ability to get rid of the heat, be it from equipment or from uh, the, the astronauts uh, themselves. And, and uh, the, uh, this heat is actually transferred to the ambient environment. And, and uh, that, that also poses a lot of challenges, by the way. And and why does gravity have such a role to play in managing temperature inside spacecraft, whether it be for humans or even just for the electronics on board? The the impact is specific to what we call two-phase systems, which are being projected right now for virtually every new space system, every new habitat, uh, missions, you know, to deep space. It, so it's very important in situations where you have liquid vapor flow that is utilized to transfer energy and maintain the desired temperature. The reason this is important for liquid vapor or two-phase systems, we call them two-phase systems, is that there is an element of buoyancy, okay, meaning the motion of vapor within a liquid, for example, is is highly affected by buoyancy because you have two uh, two states with very different densities. Now, think of it this way: if you are boiling water in a pot at home, you could see that the vapor goes up, okay, during the boiling process. That's a buoyancy effect. Now, when when you're dealing with reduced gravity, the buoyancy is compromised. Uh, you know, on the moon, you're talking one six. The uh, Earth gravity on Mars is three eighths. The Earth gravity and in space vehicles is microgravity. So it's a different gravitational environment. Therefore, different two phase behavior that will occur in these systems. Hence, the need to do research. Okay, to to be able to assess how weightlessness or reduced gravity would impact those uh, two-phase type situations and therefore the energy transfer as well as the temperature control in all these NASA applications. Let's take a moment, though, and understand 
what is a single phase temperature control? What, what does that really mean if, like the, when we think of phase? Yeah, single phase means uh, you would have a liquid coolant, okay, that is routed through a variety of equipment and component in a space systems to pick up the heat. When it picks up the heat, the liquid gets warmer, and then you pass it through a heat exchanger to reject that heat and bring the liquid back to the initial temperature in a closed cycle. And when you mean phase, I mean the single phase, it's just liquid the entire time. Yes, it's pure liquid. Two phase meaning we have phase change taking place from liquid to vapor and then back from vapor to liquid. So the vapor is the is the second of the phases of the two phase, right? It, exactly. So when we're thinking about gravity though, right, here on Earth, as you said, you know, when we boil a pot of water and the you know water is the cold water is at the bottom of the pot and it gets heated up and there are these bubbles of vapor that form and because of the buoyancy those bubbles then then reach the top and then dissipate mm-hmm. what happens to those bubbles if you were to say boil a pot of water on the international space station well you wouldn't boil water in an open fashion true the water the uh, the uh the fluid, which is the coolant, is, uh, boils within a channel, a confined channel. It's a closed system. So the, uh, the coolant comes in maybe in liquid state, begins to pick up heat from, for example, electronics, from other systems on board a space vehicle. And in doing so, the liquid is converted to vapor, okay? And so now, instead of liquid, you have a two-phase mixture, a liquid-vapor mixture. Mm-hmm. And that mixture is routed ultimately to what we call a condenser, okay, which rejects the heat from the uh, fluid, the two-phase mixture, in a variety of ways. There are many different ways. And then by doing so, it returns the fluid back to liquid state alone. It starts at liquid when it begins the cooling process. When it absorbs the heat, it turns into a two-phase liquid vapor mixture. And then in the condenser, is ultimately returned back to liquid phase. I hate to be such a pain, but I'm still going to bring you back to the pot of water just so mm-hmm. that our, our listeners really understand, you know, the importance of gravity in mm-hmm. two phase, right? Yeah. So. When the water, let's say there was a pot of water, yes, it doesn't have a lid, but to say a pot, mm-hmm. and there's there's a pot of water on you know the International Space Station because it has microgravity, mm-hmm. that when the water hits the heat and is, is, is heated up and the temperature rises and it shifts into the second phase, Right. Mm-hmm. We would expect on Earth that there would be all these little bubbles, right? That would that would then travel up to yep. the surface and and that would be the motion inside that pot. But that's just not really how it works though in microgravity, is it? I mean, am I correct in stating that basically one big bubble forms and sort of stays in the middle? You're absolutely correct about that. And so the motion then gets slowed down, right? Exactly. What happens in, uh, let's say you're, you're boiling in, a, in the situation you describe in a microgravity environment. So what happens there is the bubbles that are formed on the, wa- on the walls 
of the uh, surface that's dissipating the heat, those bubbles are not moved away from the surface. Instead, they tend to pile up uh, over the surface. So it's like okay. a big traffic jam of vapor. Exactly. Exactly. So it's an entirely different behavior. Now, if you have a two-phase mixture that is flowing in a pipe, what you do then, given this phenomenon that I just described, what you do then is rely on the inertia of the flow to move the bubbles, to flush the bubbles away into the system. So uh, because you don't have gravity, you have to rely on other forces to achieve the uh, energy transfer and the temperature control. And so because of this issue that's created by the lack of gravity or lack of enough gravity Mm -hmm. and that it affects the actual motion of the vapor inside of the liquid, what's the challenge then that you're trying to solve that you're trying to, to, to get data about um, in, in microgravity for this two-phase sort of flow system? Okay, so he, he, here is the fundamental issue. Uh, the uh, two-phase systems are desired, highly desired for space applications because of their ability to uh, achieve much better heat transfer rates And as such, it will allow us to miniaturize and reduce the weight of uh, several components in a space vehicle as compared to a liquid cooling system. Okay, so that is is fundamental. Then uh, why do we do this type of work? Well, it's very important because our technical know-how regarding these two-phase systems comes from Experiments performed in Earth's gravity over uh, probably about eight different decades, okay, all wow. responding to Earth's gravity, okay? So being in a different uh, gravitational environment means that those models are no longer uh, applicable, okay? Therefore, we have a lack of design uh, tools when we're trying to uh, design and construct space components, okay? Because the knowledge that we have is limited to Earth's gravity. So now that we have the basics of the challenge, let's dive into what your experiment, the flow boiling and condensation experiment, mm-hmm. actually you know, does. I mean, why you've decided to spend, what, a decade so far, I think? Yes. On yes. these questions. And and perhaps you could even discuss, you know, what's been going on with module one. Okay. So uh, there is there is a report that is published uh, about every 10 years, which is supplied to the uh, to our uh, politicians, as a matter of fact, to recommend technologies that are very important to the future of space technology. And prior to initiating our experiment back in 2011, in the report that was published at that time, there were very clear recommendations that moving forward, we really need to understand how phase, two-phase systems behave in reduced gravity. And out of that recommendation uh, came another one, which is the need to perform experiments to help understand that behavior. And those experiments would ultimately lead to new models. Okay, we need, at the end of the day, 
we just don't want to just to have data, experimental data. The data has to culminate in uh, design relationships, computer models, whatever it is. Okay, and those models would require uh, reliance and validation uh, as compared to the data that we obtain in reduced gravity. So that was the impetus at that po- at that time, and uh, there was a tremendous interest in NASA in pursuing this effort. The reason it's taken ten years, you know, this is a very sophisticated setup. Uh, it is the largest and most complex facility design for investigation of heat transfer uh, in reduced gravity. Okay, and, and when so, you say it's the largest, I mean, what do you mean by the largest? Like, how, how are you I, measuring? Is it like pieces? Is it the number of people? You know, tell us about that. Yes. Um, uh, prior to our study, there have been uh, small-scale experiments. Okay. Uh, for example, the uh, Japanese space uh, Organization, the European Space Organization, have been conducting experiments involving two-phase uh, flow and heat transfer, albeit using miniaturized or relatively small uh, devices with slow, small power input. The reason for that is cost. I mean, just to be clear, uh, because these experiments are very expensive. So our facility instead utilize uh, large coolant flow rates, large power densities that are indicative of what's actually would happen in a space system. Okay, so uh, that's one aspect. Also, if you look at uh, the uh, components of the facility, they have been custom crafted by a lot of people from Purdue as well as NASA Glenn Research Center, many different components, there's data acquisition, there's video capture, there is all sorts of hardware that are required for that purpose. And by the way, the, the design was based on experiments we had to perform and validate in our lab beforehand, okay, just to make sure that everything is sound and safe, and subsequently run similar experiments in parabolic flight experiments, parabolic flight involving uh, zero gravity achieved in different parabolas uh, within uh, using parabolic flight aircraft. So we had to go through all these processes and had to be uh, had to pass uh, different uh, reviews, very rigorous reviews, in order to reach a point where we have full confidence in the uh, in the design that we finally submitted for the International Space Station. This is why it took th- uh, that long. Now that you've got, you know, the first module up there, mm-hmm. you also just recently were able to send up the second module for this, okay. you know, flow, boiling, and condensation experiment, right? It just arrived at the space station, if I'm not mistaken. I'd like yeah. to ask, though, before we move on to the second module, I'm wondering, you know, about the data that you received from the first module. You know, it's been there for about two years so far. That if there was anything from the data so far that surprised you or was somehow special? Okay, that's a very good question. Actually, the flow boiling and condensation experiment is being conducted in two completely different phases. In the first phase that was completed already, the facility, the system, 
was supplied to the International Station, including the primary test module, which is dedicated to the study of flow boiling, only the boiling part of the study. Okay, and uh, uh, we got uh, uh, massive amounts of data, massive amounts of video uh, to understand the behavior of the bubbles within the flow. And as a result, we published, and we are still publishing, several studies pinpointing the important outcomes okay, of these experiments and also models, design models, that we are recommending for the community in terms of design of uh, future space systems. Okay, so that is, that is really what we have accomplished. And uh, I've had about 15 uh, doctoral students participate one way or another with this effort. And uh, NASA Glenn actually provided tremendous support. Uh, I believe many tens of scientists, engineers, and technicians participated in, in this effort. So it's a, it's a very, very large-scale effort. Now, we were able to complete the, uh, the tests uh, for flow boiling. And the second phase started by the launch of the condensation module on August 1st. And the condensation module uh, will be used to obtain data, which is the flip side of boiling. With boiling, you're transferring the liquid uh, or the fluid from liquid state to a mixture of liquid and vapor. In condensation, you're doing the exact opposite. You're recapturing the fluid by converting it back from vapor to liquid. Okay, and the reason we have these two phases is that every system, two closed, two-phase system, involves on one hand the uh, energy capture by boiling, on the other hand the energy rejection by condensation. Now I've seen some things uh, from the European Space Station. Sorry, the European Space Agency, mm-hmm. and I was kind of wondering in those papers they said that they had to use some electricity perhaps to to actually get those um, bubbles moving as opposed to them staying stagnant with, within this closed loop that you're talking about. Is, is yeah. that something that you guys are also doing? I mean, perhaps, you know, take a, take a moment to talk about that. No, we're not utilizing that. Uh, our goal is far more practical rather, impo- uh, rather than imposing a high voltage or doing something very unique to move the bubbles. Uh, what we are relying on in reduced gravity is a combination of other forces, including the inertia of the flow and also another uh, force called surface tension, to be able to achieve the fluid motion, okay, even in the absence of gravity. Okay, so the focus of the European Space Agency is very different. It it's, uh, could be classified as an enhancement technique. And what we're trying to do is mimic the processes that will actually take place in realistic two-phase components for space systems. When do you think you and your intrepid team of graduate students will have shareable data and and who gets access to it? I, I know, for instance, you know, again, you know, including the European Space Agency, but that there are others that are looking to this data to to also construct their own models or their own mechanical answers to this challenge of, of cooling 
or heating space systems or, or habitats? I mean, when do you think you, you guys will actually have something? The uh, papers that we have been writing include very detailed information about virtually every single data point that we obtain. These are massive publications with many tens of figures, each including uh, operating conditions for different flow rates, different pressures, different temperatures. Uh, so all of that, that information is made, made public as required by our NASA sponsor. And we know that there is tremendous uh, interest from the European Space Agency, the Japanese, the Chinese. And we see that, part of, by the way, through the reviews of our papers. When we get reviewers, uh, uh, you know, it's almost very clear that they come from these uh, international agencies. And they ask a lot of questions. They want more detail. Uh, and we try to provide that as best we can. What's your number one or number two question that you get from all these different space agencies? The one question that I don't like <laughs> is when they ask about details they shouldn't know. And we get a lot of those. And uh, by the way, we uh, sometimes when we are trying to respond to reviewers, we go back to NASA for expert control and approval. And sometimes they tell us, let's not uh, get into this area or apologize, basically, that we are not able to answer those questions. So that is, that is the one type of question that I don't like. On the other hand, there are very interesting questions by people who are uh, scientists who are very curious about the phenomena that we describe, and they want, want us to dive more into what's happening, you know, what happened to a bubble when it moves on the surface, when it uh, departs from the surface and mixes with the flow, things like that. That's to us very enjoyable. And when do you think you guys will will have shareable data for the second module, which which just went up earlier this month? Uh, we know that the uh, experiments on condensation will commence in a few weeks, okay? Assuming there are no glitches, and obviously you always have to, you know, be mindful of the fact that these are complicated systems, uh, assuming there are no problems, okay, it will take us several weeks to acquire the data, potentially faster than the flow boiling for a variety of reasons. And uh, our goal is to immediately begin analyzing the data and publishing it in our uh, journals. So as I said before, you've been working on this for more than a decade, and mm -hmm. you've been a mechanical engineer for decades, mm -hmm. and you have a creative bone. What's next for Professor Isam Mudawar? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting that two-phase systems and the way they transfer energy and also control temperature, help control temperature, are not unique to space systems. We see those in a variety of applications, very important applications, as a matter of fact. For example, uh, they're used in, I mean, you've, you've heard recently about fusion reactors, finally making a lot of sense uh, in terms of ability to, to provide energy. And a key component of a fusion reactor is the blanket, okay, that faces the plasma. And that's where we have enormous amount of heat that is captured by cooling channels. And this is done via phase change, meaning uh, the liquid comes in, picks up the heat, and it's transformed into two-phase 
liquid vapor mixture before it comes out. So that's one application, uh, you know, of our work as well. Uh, we see a lot of similar applications for cooling of electronics and data centers uh, for advanced radars, uh, for high mark uh, uh, engines, for avionics, uh, you name it. So there is tremendous similarity in terms of uh, the how these phase change systems impact a lot of different technologies and a lot of different applications other than space. And we continue to explore those, you know, in, uh, for example, one of our more recent applications, which utilize precisely the information we got out of the flow boiling and condensation experiment is ultra fast charging of electric vehicles. Okay. Uh, The same cooling methods that we adopt in FBCE are being implemented in our new patented work involving ultra-fast charging of electric vehicles. So uh, the synergy here is is very profound, and we continue to explore many other applications using the models, the uh, technical know-how that we have developed from the uh, FBCE study. Isam, thank you so much for making the time to come on the Downlink podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's absolutely a pleasure. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.